Welcome to Unstrategy Showcase. It's Fergus in Chicago. This is another in our series of conversations on general issues and topics and strategy. Today we talk with Gareth Kay. He's the founder of Chapter in San Francisco. Gareth has a great sort of history in the business, and you can check out his LinkedIn profile here on the episode page. Uh, we center our discussion around three topics. One is problem finding versus problem solving. Uh, the other is free range unconstrained planning beyond silos. The third is building brands in an age of great expectations. And that third uh, theme, when we talk about it here, Gareth kind of refers to an article written by uh, Adam Morgan of Eat Big Fish a couple of years ago called uh, Uber's Children. And I I checked it out later and then I've actually put a link to to a speech that Adam Morgan gave in I think October of 2016, that that really talks about and expands upon this topic. So it's it's 16 minutes that are well worth having a listen to. So here we go with Gareth Kay, Chapter San Francisco. Enjoy. Welcome, Gareth. Good to have you back. Hey, Fergus. How are you? And I say back because we've tried this before, and we had uh, it was sort of comedic uh, how it all kind of played out with with our connection. So we had to find a better connection. Well, you know, here's, here's, here's to the power of IT departments. I think that proved it the last time we uh, we tried to speak where, um, I don't know what was going on with the internet, but it was not our friends that day. That is for sure. <laughs> it was. That's actually, uh, that might've been the worst experience I've had recording one of these shows because we just picked a bad day or a bad room. At least I'm memorable, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the the last one in the last recording, I mentioned that obviously we're we're a, a podcast about uh, about creative strategies for particular campaigns. That's what we love to talk about. But then there are times when we come across great people like you and and a few others who who can't talk about specific client projects in great detail. So we we try and weave together themes. Sure that sort of play out in both the, your approach to the work that you like to do and also within the work itself. So, so we, we talked about, and we talked about in advance of this conversation, we talked about maybe three different themes and I want to start, I want to sort of get to those in a few minutes. But the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, um, is a more general thing. And it's about the fact that it's the, the question is, does advertising not work anymore or do advertising agencies just not work anymore? Wow, that's a $64 million question, I think quite literally. Um, I think advertising, of course, works. If it wasn't working, then, you know, clients would not be investing with their dollars. The question becomes how we frame advertising up and where does it kind of fall into the process? Um, One of my kind of big concerns in, uh, I guess, my past life working at some great agencies was that clients would come to you and there was already kind of half the solution inside the brief to you, which was, can you make an advert to do this? Can you make a a, a video that does this thing? Rather than asking um, a more fundamental question to address with creativity in its broadest sense. I think when advertising agencies are really good and have been at their best both now, but I think importantly, historically, they've had a more expansive view around what their role can be in the marketing process. So one of the most eye-opening things, Fergus, I kind of always point back to was some of the work that was done in the 60s and 70s um, at JWT in the UK. And there was this great story I heard about 
uh, one of their old clients, which was a, a flower maker called Rankovis McDougall, a massive, massive yeah. British corporation at the time. And they had a problem, which was, you know, there simply were um, the, the price that they were able to command for their flower was diminishing. They had too much supply of flour and not enough demand. So that was obviously, you know, impacting uh, just with a natural law of economics on what their, their pricing could be. Um, so they um, looked at that problem. And rather than saying, you know what, um, for example, colour TV is now taking place in the UK. We'll just make this really emotive piece of advertising using all this new technology that will just make people feel so much more excited about the brands, you know, you have, the flour you make. They actually took a step back and said, we're observing, you know, an, an interesting trend that is going on in the UK at that time, which was um, the rise of, I guess, the kind of big supermarkets, uh, particularly supermarkets that were no longer really on the high street. And um, they began to kind of make an interesting jump, which went, you know, people love to go down to their bakers and get, you know, really great quality cakes, but they simply weren't going there anymore. So what if we could create a brand that would allow us to make the um, cakes of high street quality that were available inside supermarkets? And that would allow us to use more flour. It would obviously then, you know, allow us to create um, new channels and new revenue streams. And from that was born this idea of Mr. Kipling's cakes, where they invented this character called Mr. Kipling. Um, and, you know, JWT's role wasn't simply to make the adverts. They had the idea for this new brand this new business, this kind of new revenue stream for the organization. They came up with the name, they came up with the backstory. Uh, legend has it, but in fact, they came up with some of the recipes uh, for some of the initial offerings that uh, Mr. Kipling's had in the marketplace. And that became um, an absolutely massive hit and is still to this day, um, probably you know, the best selling um, cake brand inside the UK. And that was a creative solution to a business problem it had advertising as part of it, but the advertising was part of the creative solution. It wasn't the only piece of creativity um, that they exerted. And my, my point with that is advertising agencies at their best can come up with those creative ideas that can just unlock untold value um, for clients. I think part of the problem is they probably didn't receive their fair share of money um, for you know, the, the, the commercial value but they created um, through that act of creativity. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges um, facing advertising agencies is their business model um, is far too attached to a channel as opposed to being really kind of attached to the power, the superpower they have, which are these creative ideas that can unlock a really powerful and valuable solution to a problem. And just, you know, see uh, solutions in different ways that clients can't. Is a, is, a, is a part of this the idea that, that we have sort of let the, let the side down, meaning that advertising agencies have allowed themselves to be uh, um, treated in a way other than respect and have done work that clients want rather than doing the work that clients need? Um, I think the last part of your statement is quite possibly true. I think there's not just the fault of the agencies. I think there was, you know, a drift that happened inside um, clients where I think quite often the marketing function began to almost, you know, um, withdraw and specialize itself into becoming about communications and becoming into 
you know, about advertising, because it was clearly an incredibly powerful lever that these companies could pull um, to go and drive their businesses forward. But as they did that, they began to kind of, you know, seed ground to other parts of the organization. Um, there was that kind of march towards specialization where suddenly rather than having, you know, one partner working with the marketing department, there would be a stream of specialists. You know, there was the, as you see nowadays, the digital agency, the social media agency, you name the channel, there's an agency for that. And I think that kind of specialization um, is causing a real danger for advertising agencies and their relevance. But I also think it's causing real problems for brands and their relevance because they're just becoming far too fragmented. And I feel that, you know, quite often inside client orgs, you know, the marketing function really is a comms and advertising function rather than um, a function whose sole objective is to find the best way to kind of stimulate repeatable um, demand. But the, the, the thing that I, I hate to come back to this reference, but it's the only one I can think of that really is, is, is sound is the idea that um, we don't talk to we don't talk to our lawyers and tell them what we think they should do because we respect that the law is a practice area that has professionals it's it's a practice area that's demonstrated its value it's an understood value and yes. so you know clients go okay you, you know best we're going to do it but how have we gotten to a point and I don't think we're, I, we weren't at that point back in the great days of mm-hmm. advertising. And I'm not saying that as a guy who's been in this, this category for a number of years. I'm just saying this as a, that's a truth or known truth that advertising was extraordinarily effective. And it's not talked about as being extraordinarily effective now. And I don't think it's just because we have audiences splintered and we have digital, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I wonder how do we get back to that place where this industry is respected enough and viewed as being objective and professional practice? It just doesn't seem to be right now. By, by the C-suite, by the C-suite, that is. No, I think that's a fair point. I think there's, um, I think a couple of things that are at play there, folks. I think there is, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there's an economic issue, which is around, how do agencies get compensated and arguably an oversupply in the marketplace that's driving down fees. But I think there's a kind of a, a structural and philosophical challenge that's existed, which is I think agencies have been less confident, maybe is the right piece of language description, of being able to push back on some of the asks they're getting from clients. And they're not able to build the relationship where they're you know, genuinely helping clients find better problems to solve and offering answers that um, have creativity um, in its broadest sense at the heart. They tend to kind of jump towards what the advertising solution can be. And that's fair. It's a very fair point. You know, earlier you mentioned that we were talking about the question was around does advertising work and, and you mentioned yes and I push back on that. I want to just be clear on that. I My thing is I hear about... Um, I hear about conversion rates and I hear about the definition of work that works. And I think that I don't think we have a high enough standard in what the definition is of work that works, you know, with, with, with a click rate through and it's in the industry, you hear about click rates that are 0.05 or 0.00 this, and that's a definition of success. To me, that's a definition of failure. I mean, I don't understand that personally, but that's become the baseline to which we all try to perform against. Uh, shame on us, I think. 
yeah, we're optimizing to the to the wrong maximus, I think, you know, where we're looking at very kind of behavioral rates. You are at the end of the day, what you measure as someone said very famously many years ago. Um, and I think, you know, we haven't done a good enough job as an industry overall. And there are exceptions, because I'll talk about those in a moment, and actually really demonstrating what the true value of advertising can be, not just in the short term, not just at that click, for example, but how they can cre- how it can create long term value for businesses. Now, you know, being from the UK, you know, I can go and point back to the IPA Effectiveness Awards, which is a wonderful database that shows the uh, long term value creation of advertising and yeah. has real learnings about how great advertising works and how it contributes towards businesses. And I think that's had some positive impact in the C-suite outside the marketing function on why people should invest in advertising and what makes great advertising. I think the danger is there is not enough um, work being done by people who work in the advertising industry um, to really uh, tell a powerful, compelling story that is evidence-based that really demonstrates how advertising can create long-term value. But I think also how creativity more broadly can create long-term value. Are you uh, familiar with anybody in the US or anybody even outside the UK that's focused on demonstrating that value in the same way that Les Minette with the uh, the long and the short of it is with, with IPA and their database? I, I'm not aware of anybody here in the US that's actually taking the time to focus on on elevating the sense of what the industry can actually do and how it can perform and if it's treated and allowed to be what it can be. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a deficit in the US, for example, in terms of that quality of thinking. Obviously, there are awards like the FEs. There are organizations, you know, like the 4As and the ANAs who do work around that, but it hasn't got the rigor and I think yeah. the importance that it has in the US. And there's definitely, you know, the strategists and agencies over here who are good at telling that story. Um, I think part of the, the challenge now is how can we get that story in front of the right people inside client organizations? You know, unfortunately, I think, you know, increasingly in many orgs, you're just not getting the exposure to people outside the marketing organization as much as we need, be they CEOs, CFOs, et cetera. Um, to really go and help tell that story. I think that's something that, you know, the marketing industry has to get better at. Um, so it's too fragmented over here. And I would think the the data we have is not rigorous enough. Yeah, I think that I hope that uh, if we just think about advertising and marketing in a com, from a comms perspective, I'm excited because I think, and I'm optimistic because I think we're getting back to the power of a big idea Mm-hmm. driving everything. We lost mm-hmm. our way for probably 20 years. We were distracted by shiny new objects yes. of every shape. But I, I, I kind of, I'm very hopeful that we're kind of seeing our way back to that in a comms perspective. And I'm also hopeful, even though we're in this nasty time in society right now, that maybe C-suite is seeing that the power of ideas in marketing uh, maybe is a little more, um, uh, can can be, a little more, not so much tangible, but it can demonstrate its value a little bit more in the way that it's able to do it today. Yeah, I hope so. And I think there's, you know, definitely the case, and I think we're seeing this now where you're seeing the brands that have built banks of goodwill 
perhaps do a little bit better at the moment in terms of their performance. I mean, obviously, you know, there's lots of bigger issues um, outside what an individual brand can do that's impacting performance. Um, but I think, you know, we're, we're beginning to see that. And I think at the moment, there's a huge opportunity, not just simply to do the kind of, you know, old action, which is, you know, spend more than your competition because you'll come out of uh, an economic downturn in a stronger place. I think that's still probably true, but I think we're facing a different set of circumstances now. I think there is um, hopefully going to be uh, a shift coming out of this where uh, more clients begin to understand that great marketing is about what you do, not just simply what you say, and about getting the order and the sequencing right, which is about doing things and documenting those things and telling those stories, as opposed to just trying to kind of paint more artifice um, on top of quite empty gestures. So let's talk about our first theme, which was, uh, which was problem finding, not just problem solving. Tell, uh, tell me and tell all of us a little bit about um, your take on that as a theme. What is meant by that? Well, I think as an industry, and I think this is not about just the agency industry, I think you know, the client world as well, I think we almost place too much emphasis on the solution. You know, as a planner, there's a lot of heat often put on what the brief is like, the proposition. As agencies, you're kind of obsessing over you know, the creative idea and its execution. I don't think we put nearly enough emphasis and invest enough time in finding the real problem to solve, you know, the problem that lies behind the problem, the human problem that lies behind a commercial problem. And I think far too often we end up um, addressing symptoms um, and doing our best to put really good band-aids over those. I think we have to stop taking client briefs, client requests, you know, at face value. I remember far too many briefs um, that I've seen in my past and even today um, which, you know, are the same old briefs of raising awareness, changing perception, which we far too often just take at face value. And I think the first job on any assignment for any strategist is to look for the real problem to solve. And I think we're going to put some value on our ability to be good problem finders, not just problem solvers. So is an example of that, I, I totally get that point because I think, um, I think for like most planners who've been, uh, who've been in the, have been in this business for a number of years, they have all come across a problem and they, they see it clearly and they come across that problem as they're doing their discovery, as they're getting to know the category, getting to know the product, getting to know the client, getting to know the customer base. And then they, 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 once they identify this problem and they can see it as a root problem and they know that no matter what you fix around it, you're still going to come up against this key problem that's going to cause a problem with conversion or interest or appeal. Um, and, but they can't solve it because it's not an advertising problem. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. the problem that we're finding problems that can't be solved with ads? I think that's part of the problem is that kind of siloed thinking. But I think quite often we're just not spending the time to kind of do that, you know, the uh, the Toyota production line um, approach, um, which I think they call, um, I think it's called Kaizen. Um, but right. at the heart of that lies this whole thing around, you know, the five whys. And it was really about trying to ask why five times to kind of get to a problem that needs to be solved. So, you know, for example, on that car production line, you might see that a robot has stopped, for example. And you might kind of, by pushing and asking why five times, begin to understand what the problem is that really needs to be solved. 
um, which might be, you know, that there's no filter on an oil pump in the other building, as opposed to thinking it could just be an overloaded circuit. It's about pushing down to what is that real problem. When you think about chapter and what you, what you guys are doing today, are you thinking about innovation uh, and creating, you know, sort of uh, human-friendly experiences in, in that sort of a, a consumer experience point of view, holistically, or are, you, or are you going deeper into the product, into the service, into innovations and inventiveness in those areas also? It depends where the problem is, I think, to be quite honest, Fergus. I mean, I think it's, again, you know, more often than not, we're looking at you know, a point of view, which is you build brands today through actions um, as opposed to just kind of you know, relying on words. Um, and so we are tending to look at experience, but we're also looking at how perhaps you, know, you can improve the experience of existing products and services as opposed to maybe bolting on or building new types of experience journeys um, for people. But our belief is if you can go and get that experience right and do it in a way that feels compelling to people and builds a sense of distinctiveness and helps build new associations in people's minds, that's when you begin to use the power of communication to go and communicate that to people. Uh, and arguably, we, would, we believe that, you know, um, you will actually need to use less media dollars to communicate that stuff because you've actually got genuinely something new to say. And the kind of newness and freshness of the offering will obviously drive things like word of mouth, but also we kind of feel that it can kind of, you know, get greater momentum in culture um, rather than just having to rely on, frankly, buying lots of oxygen and media spend to kind of keep the fire going. Part of our biggest learning, quite candidly, as a company was, you know, we were talking to the wrong clients quite often for, you know, the first year of our, our existence where they're not along with the thinking and then go, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world, but I can't influence that. Exactly. Exactly. And it's such a disheartening thing to hear. It's a, such, such a disheartening thing to hear when, yeah. and you're supposed to, you're supposed to use your creative abilities in areas that you know in your own mind. Are, are are at the very minimum of, of veneer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that, and it, it reminds me of a of a uh, an example from a couple of years back. I was working with uh, an automotive brand with their finance arm, a major automotive brand here in the U.S. And as we began to explore the problem, we discovered, and the and the, and the problem uh, was that the you know the typical traditional role of the automotive finance company is to help the dealer sell cars. Right. And yeah. so they organize in a certain way. And um, the way this brand had been organized, or this division had been organized, it was interfacing with customers and it was uh, processing leads. Mm -hmm. So it would sort of pre-qualify people mm -hmm. and then it would send these sort of pre-qualified leads to the dealers. So as we began to explore into it, it actually turned out that they were only sending forward 20% of the leads. Yeah, 80% 80, 80 of the leads were being pushed out because they didn't meet the standards of the particular finance company. And yeah. so, but the dealers could actually convert at least 50% of the 80% that were being yes. rejected. So what had happened was the finance company had forgotten the business it was in. It wasn't in the business of providing financing. It was in the business of selling cars. Yeah. And so that insight had would, would have required a complete culture change at the automotive finance company, uh, which, of course, they weren't willing to do. Yes. Which, uh, which leads, to the, leads to the question of who, who do the clients need to be now when you have to make a, uh, you have to drive a decision that doesn't require marketing anymore. It doesn't require marketing alone. 
Yeah, I think it depends on the organization. And, you know, one of the things we're trying to get better at is really understanding the shape of organizations and where influence truly lies inside the organization. But if I was going to go and paint a, a sweeping generalization, we found the greatest success, ironically, to help build stronger brands is to talk to people who work in product or product marketing, right. um, particularly in the Bay Area, just because they have much more um, ability to exert leverage over the overall experience um, as opposed to you know the brand marketing folks or the people who just call straight marketers who tend to be more focused on comms or on that thing called growth. Um, and we've just found that, you know, talking either to the product arms, to the design arms, or if the company's small enough, frankly, trying to build a relationship with the founders. Because it seems to me, Gareth, that almost, uh, it, it seems almost impossible for established agencies to pivot their cultures to serve the need that we're talking about here. I, I, it just seems to be that, it seems to me that the opportunity is for the new up and coming uh, boutiques or places like Chapter, right? Well, uh, obviously, I self self selfishly will say yes. That's absolutely <laughs> correct, Fergus. We are the answer. Um, but no, I think that, no, I think genuinely, there's lots of agencies out there who have the skills and have the brain power and have the superpowers to do this. What they have to do is try and liberate themselves from the constraints of just thinking inside the silo of advertising. And I think they can do amazing things. They can do great things. And you know, you see signs of that across every agency but particularly you know some of the more kind of you know born digital companies like rga they're doing this day in day out they are doing this type of work it's just the way they are um their muscle memory works frankly as an organization so i think there's lots of existing companies who are doing this already um our hope was just to go and try and build something which really was you know um very difficult to place inside a silo or a specific channel and doing that by design. So do you find that your, that your client briefs or your client asks today are super targeted or are they open-ended with, we have a problem, we have a, we have a business goal, but we don't know what our problem is, go look for it. Or are they coming in with the problem? We try to encourage any client who we, we begin to have a conversation with to make the brief as, as open-ended as possible. It's obviously, you know, have a sense of um, what the commercial challenge is, but to not have a predetermined outcome or channel or solution um, attached to it. Now, quite often we're getting briefs that, you know, people talk to us about where there is that kind of channel attached to it early on, and we will have a conversation to see if they're open to being more expansive and allowing us to kind of, you know, roam across the business um, to find the, the real problem to solve and then, let the solution and the shape of that solution reflect that problem. Um, but the best briefs you've had have just been wonderfully open-ended. And often you have the client actually almost kind of apologizing, going, the brief's a bit loose. Um, we had a, a retailer here, you know, ask us, um, I still think it's probably the best brief as a company, which was um, if we were to start our baby business today, what would it look like? Nice. That was just a wonderful brief because, you know, all bets are off. Um, there's no kind of uh, a predetermined solution to what that outcome can be. It kind of begs a question which goes, what does the business look like? Um, and what does the experience look like? It was just a, a brilliant brief. And I think we did some of our best work off the back of that because the brief was uh, an open-ended brief that went, we know we have a challenge. 
here's the business data that shows that up. How do we best, you know, address that? Our second theme was uh, free range, unconstrained planning beyond silos. So yeah. this is a pet peeve of mine too. Let's talk, let's talk about this. Obviously there's been, uh, I would call it a sort of a, a fragmentation of the planning function over the last number of years. Some of it for justifiable reasons, I get it. But uh, I think the sort of the, the, uh, the unexpected result of it can be uh, as dysfunctional as, as yeah. uh, many other things, right? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a challenge that we're facing at a macro level, you know, as, a, as an industry. And then I think we're feeling it as well, you know, inside the strategy and planning discipline in and of itself. And I think it's all born, you know, from, you know, Adam Smith's economic principle of, of specialization and that kind of being seen as a way to, to drive, you know, um, real value for businesses. But, you know, I kind of feel that one of the biggest challenges facing the industry and facing strategists is that we are specializing ourselves into irrelevance. It's become really visible, I think, inside the world of business. It's certainly become visible in marketing services. It's become visible, frankly, inside clients' own marketing functions. Our specialists are cropping up everywhere. Look at holding companies. They've diversified their offerings to offer specialization. I mean, look inside the, the agencies inside those holding companies. And they're kind of building departments within departments and disciplines have birthed all these specialized versions of themselves. And there's that kind of you know, weird thing going on in planning where, you know, there's the planner, the brand planner, the comms planner, the digital planner, the social planner. It's just, you know, incredibly, incredibly siloed. Um, and you would suggest or you would think if, you know, Adam Smith's theory held true, that this would make, you know, marketing more efficient and more effective for businesses. But I think all the evidence suggests otherwise. You know, when you look at holding companies, they may have been driving more revenue from selling services, but I think there's pretty little sign of increased productivity and profitability. And I think there's little signs that it drives to, to more effective work. I think what it's done is really fragment brands into a million little pieces. Uh, I kind of feel that, you know, really what we need to be thinking about doing is to really i guess get back to or think about how we can champion the informed generalists you know the marketers and the companies that serve them who are able to see the big picture are allowed to roam across an organization and design the right solution unencumbered by the change of specializations that means you have to be obsessed by the outcome you create not the outputs you make you have to be really good at thinking about how you can deliver a solution across time across space across different surfaces you know you have to be able to zoom in and zoom out i think going back to an earlier point fergus it's um really about marketing and all those who work in the industries that are part of that world to really get back to the four p's not just the single p of promotion being able to look at that kind of um, broad picture and not just be stuck either through muscle memory or through the brief you are given or through the relationship you have into a specific silo or chain um, is, is critical for strategists, it's critical for um, agencies, marketing services companies, and it's critical for marketers to help rebuild the power that marketing can have inside an organization. 
And I think for I think the you know, one of one of the quotes that I've loved for the last year or two, and I it's not my own, but I've read it, and I wish I knew um, uh, who who um, origi- who originated it. But it's it's the best for planners, and it's this: uh-huh. our job is not to be on top of everything; it's to get to the bottom of everything. It's brilliant. That's absolutely Isn't correct. That? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you know, I think unfortunately, there's you know real pressure now that's being exerted by you know the the quickening up of the way that companies move um, and therefore the quickening up that has gone on inside agencies where there's not enough time being given to help find the real problem and being able to roam free and understand the business and where the real problem is and therefore what shape the solution might take you know right you go back to the kind of you know classic world in an agency you know when you're doing a pitch or even frankly working on a new project for a client and you've got you know um, people asking where the brief is after 24 hours, or you know if you're lucky, maybe 72 hours. I mean, my thought is that there's absolute value to specialization, but if we and I think I think we both would agree with that. Uh, but mm-hmm. the problem is if they if they become rigid silos, mm-hmm. don't share a common thread. Yes, um, there there just creates these little fiefdoms that become rigid and don't talk to each other. And we get back to the problems that probably derail most great thinking and great ideas in business and in society, which is this idea of hanging on and being too idealized in your own world. And I don't know what the solution to that is, but I, when, I, when I think about that quote of, our job is not to be on top of everything, it's to get to the bottom of everything, that feels to me like there needs to be some sort of a redefined team rather mm-hmm. than these silos. And, I, and I, your point earlier, which is totally right, which is maybe this all started back to, with the idea of specialized agencies when the separation of media from creative agencies yep. was a part of it. I don't know how we get it back, man, but we've got to get it back because um, it's, it's sort of, we're kind of destroying ourselves from the inside out. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you have to look at it from, I think, from, you know, the outside in and work from people backwards and go, what are people seeing out there? Far off, far too often, it's the worst possible situation, which is you know absolutely fragmented brands that don't feel coherent at all in the yeah. kind of interaction you have with them. So you're not building that kind of empire of the mind, as as Judy Williamson talks about. You know what the great brands do, but I think it's also you know they're frankly you know trying to solve the wrong problem. They're solving you know 500 problems across 500 channels as opposed to really understanding what is the fundamental human problem behind the commercial problem and how can we best apply creativity to solve that. And that is, I think, the most important, most valuable thing, frankly, I think, you know, creative companies can bring to clients. I mean, yes, the, the craft of the idea, the kind of the, the leap that the creative idea takes is all absolutely, you know, uh, incredible in terms of its value creation. But if you're not making that leap from the right place, it's kind of a fool's errand. And frankly, you make better leaps and it's easier to make the leap if you find the right problem to solve. Which brings us to our our last uh, theme, which was building Mm -hmm. brand uh, in an age of great expectations. Yeah. So there's a lot, obviously a lot of factors at play here. Uh, The whole new digital ecosystem of Mm -hmm. e-commerce. And and, and I think from a psychology of the consumer, I think, we have become trained to have expectations we're not even conscious of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so tell us a little bit more about this. Well, this is really, you know, informed by 
uh, I think an article that Adam Morgan of Eat Big Fish wrote a few years ago, which I think was called Uber's Children. And it was basically an observation of uh, his child inside a, a car service, um, inside an Uber, sorry, you know, obviously an Uber because it was a children. Um, and just kind of, you know, what they expected to be able to do uh, in on that journey. And when they didn't take an Uber, they suddenly didn't have, you know, that kind of, you know, seamless, easy experience. They weren't able to play their own music, blah, 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 blah. And there's just the reality is, if, even if you are not competing directly against a brand like an Amazon or a brand like uh, an Uber or a brand like a Google or a Target, the reality is in many ways you are competing against them because they have set new standards um, of expectation in people's minds for what the experience should be from a brand, that it should be, you know, proactive, it should be seamless in many ways. It's about being kind of, you know, uh, invisible uh, in many ways. It kind of runs against whole, you know, advertising, you know, gestalt of, you know, be noticeable, you know, paint your, paint your name on the side of an atomic bomb and drop that to make sure that people know who you are and where you are. And I think that change in expectations has, is one, sorry, is one thing that clients, absolutely need to understand which is you're not just competing against your direct competitive set there is a set of expectations now in culture and in people's lives that you have to shoot for and aim at um, and then secondly um, it is really about understanding that now brands need to be built through their experience and their actions not just um, their words and their communication and it's it sounds like a very obvious observation into the world, but I think it's one that is forgotten about, you know, far, far too often. So it uh, seems that it seems that examples of that would be because it seems that this is really a, a David versus Goliath dynamic, meaning that most of the Davids uh, are already clued into this and they can more easily sort of build that infrastructure, this new modern day infrastructure, but it's the Goliaths that are kind of getting killed by this because they have massive infrastructure and cultures. However, I kind of think of some brands that have successfully transitioned or not transitioned, but at least reacted to major threats that are sort of Amazon rooted, which would be ironically Walmart. I, I kind of think that the way Walmart has reacted to the Amazon delivery proposition by adding on pickup in store and delivery has been a great example of how a Goliath can in fact pivot if they're, if they want to. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think both Walmart and Target have done pretty yeah. remarkable jobs at fighting against. And I think actually if you look at their kind of, you know, history over time, I think it's quite interesting because, you know, originally they either partnered with Amazon. So I think Target's e-commerce business is basically being done through Amazon um, for, a, for right. a long period of time. Um, and in Walmart's case, they were almost doing that kind of classic thing of, you know, how quickly can we become Amazon as opposed to, sticking um at what they do best and using the assets they have which are incredibly powerful so you know i think those are great examples of you know big organizations that have been able to um one remember who they are understand what the most powerful assets are but then think about how they can uh redesign the experience in the context of today to offer uh, a customer experience that in some cases, and in many cases, can be better than what Amazon does, which you know is wonderfully magical. Um, but they are able to compete against it because they lean into their strengths and bring something different and something additive to that type of experience. 
What what about uh, what about DC uh, DTC brands, the direct to consumer? How do you? I mean, they just seem to be set up to uh, at least. I'm not sure direct to consumer. Um, I mean, the model obviously exists, but then it seems to be blending back uh, to a combination of physical and, and direct. Yes. Yeah, you look at, you know, Warby Parker, whether, you know, one of their big right. investments has been inside the stores, you know, and I can understand that there's a need for that type of thing. I think, you know, for me, I'm almost more interested, as much as the DTC brands, uh, some of them are quite remarkable and their business models are smart and clever and what they deliver to people is generally feels fresh and new and wonderful. I'm far more interested in helping um, more legacy organizations think about how they can um, take their strengths and re, um, uh, readdress those as strengths in the context of today, as opposed to trying to, you know, almost, you know, build from the blank sheet of paper. Um, there's just something really interesting to me with working with some of the bigger legacy retail brands. You know, we've been looking to work with Target over time. Um, there's also, you know, the the kind of more legacy technology brands, frankly, nowadays, which are facing similar challenges. I mean, Google does not face dissimilar challenges to some of the kind of, you know, big legacy retail brands because they're all facing upstarts who are trying to find new, better ways uh, to offer um, services to people. So I personally find that a way more fulfilling thing to work on. Yeah, I love that. It's true because ultimately the innovators become the uh, the big uh, the big dogs in the house. Yeah, yeah, takes years, but they, but they face the same infrastructure problems. Whether it's just updating updating systems and updating software, uh, it's still an issue of scale. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, how how do you form teams that sort of meet this new ask? Mm. Um, where, where do they come from? It's it's not. Is it a traditional planner? Or, it's not a traditional planner or strategist. So where where do these team members come from? What is what are the skill sets they need to be bringing to the table? Well, uh, you know, we have kind of a, a thick set of folks here. You know, like our full time staff. We have strategists and designers um, and writers and producers. And you know, some of those folks do come from ad agency backgrounds. And I don't think it's necessarily about where they come from. It's about their mindset, which is you know. Do they believe there is a better way for brands to be built nowadays? Are they interested in the kind of, you know, end-to-end brand experience as opposed to a particular part of that? If there's kind of hunger for that kind of newness and hunger to be genuinely expansive in the way they approach problems, that's what we're looking for first and foremost. But then, you know, our job is to go, okay, we do need to have people with domain experience for particular tasks so if you think about those folks full-time being the kind of architects and designers of the experience we then bring in the specialist kind of contractors to help us go and deliver um, the work across the channel so what's um the difference between gareth the planner at goodby in terms of what he's doing and what aspects of his brain versus gareth at chapter uh god that's a good question um I, this is going to sound a really weird thing. The probably most obvious thing is um, I haven't written a brief in the last five years. Um, there's no <laughs> such thing as a creative brief here. We've never written one because we believe in having, you know, people with different skill sets working together from the off on a project so that you can bring different perspectives around the problem finding, different perspectives around what approach that might take. And also we're just trying to do anything we can do. Oh, sorry, everything, everything we can do to... Uh, remove anything that resembles a relay race 
we want to have you know just those different brains come to a come to the challenge early on because we think it makes the strategy uh, more creative and it makes the creative outcome much more strategic and we just think that's super important and super powerful so no briefs i think is uh, a really important thing uh, there's less kind of talking about what should we be saying uh, and what the proposition is way more time talking about what is the problem that we need to solve which far too often just got forgotten about i think inside um agencies unfortunately and i was very guilty of that frankly um and also because we're small um i'm doing more actual client work than uh, i've perhaps done for my last few years at goodby where i was you know more trying to help build an environment um inside the department to let strategists you know do the best they possibly could do and be the best people they possibly could become so to what degree would you say your outputs now as an agency are are uh, objects, prototypes, things versus comms? Uh, that's a very good question. Last time I looked at the data on that, it was about 70% prototypes, kind of applied thinking. Um, nice, nice. Experienced ideas, about 30% comms. So we still will do comms. You know, I think there's, you know, there's, time, there's a time and a place I talked about earlier where comms come in, but it's more the kind of, I guess the exhaust fumes from the from the idea as opposed <laughs> to being the the car in and of itself. And that's just the bias. I guess you know that's our bias. You know, everyone's got a bias. That's our bias. Who is serving this sort of need in the marketplace now? I mean, who are you competing against? And you know, how do you define your competitor? It's it's really. It's, I should know a better answer to this because probably it help us as a business, but. Um, Part of the challenge is we don't pitch. So we very, you know, we don't go up in that kind of, you know, final four uh, against other yeah. people. So you don't kind of see them. But to our knowledge, you know, more often than not, you know, clients are talking with sometimes management consultancies, you know, so the McKinsey's and Accenture's of the world. Uh, quite often they're talking to, um, you know, design companies and like design of a big D, so the kind of IDOs um, and the frogs of the world. And then they're talking to more, I guess, progressive ad agencies you know and i think ad agencies who are you know um tend to be independent tend to be you know interesting shaped things like a sidley for example um we tend to run up against those folks um and that's what makes i think an interesting business because you know obviously i think part of our offering comes from each of those worlds you know i think on our good day we operate at the nexus of them on a bad day we're a car crash between them but uh, that's at least the goal is to try and have you know that kind of commercial rigor and objectivity of a, of a management consultancy the kind of human empathy that great design firms bring and just that superpower that agencies have and you know i think don't celebrate it enough which is that ability to really you know distill down the dna of a brand into a very potent simple organizing idea um, and I think, you know, those three parts are, are what we're trying to build into the DNA of this entity that is Chapter. Gareth Kay, uh, founding partner, Chapter San Francisco. Great having you, man. This has uh, been a great conversation. I appreciate it. Thank everything. you. Thank you so much for having me on. You've done a terrific job, you know, bringing some great, great um, voices uh, out into the open. And I just want to say one final thing, which is... Um, I got some advice early on in my career, which was, you know, there is no right way to do planning. You know, everyone has their own unique, different style. And I was lucky enough to learn from a real different set of strategists with different approaches, different strengths, different skills, different weaknesses. 
Um, and any good that I am as a strategist nowadays is down to being exposed to those different voices. And I think this is a wonderful way of helping uh, a mass audience um, of strategists really see some of the differences that different strategists have, you know, have in their approach and in their experience and in their careers uh, to help them form uh, the best strategists they can be going forward. So thank you for all you're doing. Uh, you're welcome, man. It's very true because if, if you ask 10 planners how they plan, you'll get 10 different answers. You would hope so. You hope so. Despite, <laughs> yeah. despite all the process charts of every agency, uh, you hope there's going to be some difference there. <laughs> That's right. Thanks so much. And we'll see everybody in the next episode.